You're listening to Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, the podcast that explores the complex histories of the liberal arts in order to reimagine their future. I'm your host, Brian Edwards, Dean of the School of Liberal Arts at Tulane University. In this episode, we'll talk about the digital humanities, featuring our guest Kim Gallen, Associate Professor of Africana Studies at Brown University. Dr. Gallen is an historian known for her extensive work on the Black press in the early 20th century. She's also an expert in the emerging interdisciplinary field of digital humanities, and her essay Black Digital Humanities is considered to have defined the field. She leads two major projects, the Black Press Research Collective and COVID Black. Welcome, Dr. Gallen. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here, Brian. Over the last couple of decades, those yeah. of us in the university have been hearing a lot about digital humanities, and people use the phrase probably in different ways yeah, yeah. as a figure in the field. How do you, first of all, describe the digital humanities? What are the digital How do they signify to you that yeah. phrase? So there was a time, and I guess there still are debates about what the digital humanities is. And, you know, if you would have asked someone, I would say back in 2008, you know, 2009, when we were really starting to use this phrase of digital humanities in a really common way in the academy, you know, there were all sorts of debates and discussions and, oh, you know, what is DH? Is it a discipline? Is it a method? Is it a field? Is it a praxis? I guess I think about digital humanities as a intersection and an approach, a method, a field. It could be any one of those things. But when I say that I'm engaging and I work in the digital humanities, I'm really thinking about the ways that digital tools and technologies create um, that sit at the intersection of humanistic fields and traditions, right? That together, digital tools and technologies with the humanities creates and opens up new fields of inquiry. Again, through being able to ask new questions, being able to look at sources and resources in different ways, being able to produce uh, scholarship in different types of ways that live almost exclusively or exclusively in digital environments, online environments. And so I don't know that I'm necessarily invested in coming down hard on what the digital humanities is, whether it is a discipline or a field, other than to say that together the digital tools and technologies with humanistic questions and inquiries has created a whole set of new concepts, ideas, and even new ways of thinking about what it means to be human. I really see that as being the cornerstone of the digital humanities is the way that digital tools and technologies come to bear on what it means to be human, both in the contemporary moment, but also historically. Whether digital humanities is a field or even a discipline or a method, it intervenes or starts to come into the conversation in the humanities in a way that suggests sort of an interruption or a different Mm -hmm. way of doing things. Yes, yeah. And I'm curious about that. And also because the word digital seems to be outside the concept of race at first. Yes. Or promises or proposes to. Yeah. So I guess how I would answer that question in terms of doing something different, uh, the digital as acting as a uh, intervention and then from some people's perspective, a disruption and the way that they interact or engage in digital humanities. The digital is a way to challenge traditional ways of thinking about humanistic work, right? And acts as a way to either 
push that work forward or even acts as a way to counter what one might see as racism, oppression, systemic bias in the way that we think about the humanities, right? And opening up the conversations about the humanities in much more expansive, much more fluid types of ways. And that's how I see my work in the digital humanities as thinking about the ways that the digital can both open up, but without serious critique can also sort of close off new inquiries that might, again, create a much more expansive, much more fluid conversation around the digital. So I guess I will say is I don't see the digital as necessarily this sort of panacea or as this sort of neutral tool or technology that is universally good. I think the digital can be just as oppressive and foreclose all types of important work, even as it can be liberatory. So in 2016, you published a really important article called Making a Case for the Black Digital Humanities. First of all, the title itself is provocative. To put black in front of digital humanities when the digital had proposed or imagined something without race. I mean, I want to spend some time talking about this essay because it's so important, so wonderful. I mean, start with this statement. The dust has yet to settle around the debates over what the digital humanities is or is not. Yeah. First, let's start with that. What, what were some of the debates you're referring to for those of us outside yeah. of those debates? Yeah, I remember those debates well. And a lot of those debates centered around who was a DH scholar, practitioner, and who wasn't. And a lot of that had to do with if you could build something, if you could code, if you were really invested in the technology in terms of being able to really have computer science skills and have that computer science background in those early years, that was a big debate, right? And people who didn't have those skills were really interested in critiquing the digital and talking about the ways that tools and technologies are not neutral and how computer science and coding have all sorts of frameworks that are constructed around structures that tend to be sexist and racist and ableist, right? Those debates about who was in and who was out of DH were the debates that I was really talking about. And the way that scholars of color, the way that, you know, women were challenging these early DH scholars who tended to be white men and making a case that there are different ways of practicing the digital humanities. And then that piece of making the case for Black DH was this idea that first, scholars of color, specifically Black scholars, had already been engaged in work around digital tools and technologies long before what we know to be the digital humanities sort of materialized in the academy. So I always like to talk about Mariama Graham at the University of Kansas, who's long been working with digital tools and technologies to build digital archives and literary collections around the history of Black writing, who still doesn't get recognized. Or Abdul Akilimad, who was doing e-Black studies before this idea of the digital humanities really started to take off and flourish, but still doesn't really get recognized as being a part of a genealogy. And so that's really what I was trying to recover 
both the idea of scholars of color, specifically Black scholars working in this space that we now think of as a digital humanities, but also making a case that there are different types of ways that we might understand the digital humanities and what they are and what they may come to be. So in your talk yesterday, you used a very provocative phrase, technological Jim Crow. Yeah. Let's talk about that phrase yeah. and what's, what you mean by that. Or- yeah. So it's not my phrase. I don't even know if, that's, uh, if I got that phrasing right, but I'm looking at the work of, of scholars and really critical thinkers like Ruhal Benjamin, um, Sophia uh, Noble, who talk about the ways that algorithms and technologies are racist and that the ways that people enter into these technologies and use these technologies without understanding the way that there are built-in structures that create disparate impacts on communities of color in terms of policing and surveillance, in terms of the way that search engines function and run, uh, the way that things are coded and the language that are used, that they've talked about those sort of practices and those types of structures, as well as the digital redlining and the way that people have unequal access to broadband technologies that would give them access to Wi-Fi. We saw what that looks like again during COVID, where communities of color tend to have less access to Wi-Fi and internet access, access to you know technology, and you know, people who live in rural communities, right? And so when so much of school and work went online, we saw again how people without access were, again, disproportionately impacted in these really negative ways about how they could access, you know, school, work, telehealth, telemedicine, things of that nature. So it sounds, as you talk about it, that there's multiple forces coming together. On the one hand, we're talking about resources, access, just being able to have access to technologies that could be enabling or useful teledoc and so on. On the other hand, you're talking about algorithms and coding and the, the sort of logics of what is behind what seems to be transparent or digital or yeah. clear or yeah. you know non-human in a sense. Right. Facial recognition software, yeah. algorithms for identifying, profiling in various right. sorts. Right. So in digital conversations, there's always this idea that you know the bug can be fixed in a yeah. sense. Right. That in some part of perfection can be achieved. Are you seeing that as itself a logical fallacy as we think about the digital? Yeah, absolutely. I don't know that I see the digital as being the solution or the digital as being correctable in that sense. I don't know that there's even the possibility of that because humans are behind these technologies and humans are fallible and humans are socialized to think in these structured ways around uh, race, gender, sexuality. And that's where the humanist comes in, quite frankly, as well as the digital humanities. And that's why I'm a little reluctant to think of it in these very sort of rarefied ways, because I do think that there's ways that work around, you know, digital surveillance and work around digital redlining, which don't necessarily always sort of crop up as digital humanities, are important have important shared concerns around the ways that, again, from my vantage point, race and, you know, humanity and these technologies sort of coalesce and come together. Let's talk a little bit about another term that I haven't used today, but that comes up a lot in your work, which is computational humanities, which seems to be running alongside the digital. Is it the same to talk about computational humanities as digital humanities or just 
help explain this term? Yeah. Um, again, these are terms that are highly debated and contextual. So I'll take from my perspective to make it really clear that, you know, I'm not suggesting that the ways that I see these terms working, that it's a definitive and even universally accepted. But, you know, my work has really taken a turn and started to think much more closely about data and computer science and computational methods in that context, right? So computational humanities is thinking about, again, the connections between humanistic questions and inquiries and computation. So again, in my work, thinking about data uh, science, thinking about data praxis, thinking about data visualization, computer science. I'm really interested in thinking about the ways that that can help us do two things. One, it can help us ask, again, new questions about the human and humanities, but also thinking about the ways that humanities and humanistic inquiry and ideas can ask us to critique computational sciences and computational analysis. And so that's what I see my work doing in both instances, both drawing on computation as important work that can then push what we know about data, but also flipping that around and thinking about the ways that the humanities can challenge computation as being a universal good or challenge data science and data praxis as being an objective sort of neutral way of understanding or getting at, you know, all sorts of things around quantitative measures of life. So data science, data analytics, data literacy are all terms that we're using a lot in the university now. And I want to talk about your COVID Black project. During the COVID-19 pandemic, arguably, I think a wider range of people were looking at data more than they used to. Right. And as a scholar of media and yeah. press, one recognized that newspapers of the last couple of years were filled with charts, data visualizations, right. faces, and so on. So before we get to talking about COVID Black Project, how have the last couple of years kind of foregrounded or brought data yeah. to popular attention? Right. You know, data was so central and has been so central to COVID in really, really useful ways. I think many people understood the pandemic largely through data and the way that the news media presented data. I mean, I always have to say this sort of we were bathed in data just by turning on your nightly news um, and, and thinking about the numbers and what those numbers meant. So it really caused me to think about what does it mean to collect and visualize data on a crisis? And what does the humanities and what do humanistic scholars have to say about those praxis, those methods, those visualizations, and how they get at the human that are behind the data, the human that are behind the numbers? And what does it mean to tell a story about a crisis through big data, you know, in a way that actually helps people to understand that these are human lives that are being impacted? And I think that the news media for better or worse, did a pretty good job of that. I mean, we had the nightly profiles and stories of people that served as a counter to the way that data can create a sort of invisibility of the human. But, you know, at the same time, I think, again, data has been such a powerful concept and idea. I think there's a sort of tension that we have right now between the quantification of life And then the sort of 
qualitative aspects of life that live, overlap, and coexist with ways that data can quantify. So tell us about COVID Black. Yeah. How did the project come to you? How did you think of the project? Yeah, and, yeah. And how did you start with it? Yeah, so I... Again, like many people were watching the news sort of start to tell us about this impact of COVID. And it was the story of data, you know, what the data was telling us about where COVID was impacting people most. And the news media, and for good reason, really highlighted the ways that communities of color, specifically Black communities, so my you know vantage point, were being impacted by COVID. And so it really got me to thinking about the ways that you know, just as much as it was about people, it was also about the ways that we understand and use data, right? And so the first sort of call to action, the way that COVID Black came to be is we need more data. We need to know what the data is telling us and we need to be able to see what the data shows us in terms of where people were being impacted the most in terms of tests, people who are coming down with COVID, people who are dying from COVID. Because that data was a call to action for people in different communities to start responding to the crises. But even as that data came out, that data started to be concerning because the data and the way the data was being used was problematic, right? So those early days of the pandemic, people were using that data to then sort of trot out some racist um, narratives about Black communities, that they have comorbidities. There's obesity and poor eating and they're not wearing masks or they believe that Black people can't get COVID and that's why they're not taking the proper precautions. And the real story behind the disproportionate impact and what the data was telling us is that longstanding structural racism is what's almost largely responsible for why we saw a disproportionate impact of COVID on Black communities. So it really made me think about, you know, how data is used and who's access to the data, because access to the data is power. And that power is what drives the narrative. So let's describe what COVID Black looks like on the screen. And we will link to it. Sure. But why don't you describe for someone who's not seeing it right okay. now what the website looks like? It's, yeah. It's quite striking. Yeah. So our you know, our major project to date has been a project titled Homegoing. And it's a way to visualize the impact of COVID through mortality, which is a grave and very serious topic. Um, the numbers of black people that have died. I think at the highest point, you know, data was telling us that black people were two to three times more likely to die from COVID than their white counterparts. And we know that indigenous communities, we know that uh, Hispanic and Latinx communities, we even know that, you know, certain communities of Asian Americans also saw disproportionate impact of COVID. But COVID Black wanted to tell a, a different story through data and think about the ways the data could be visualized in a more humanistic way. So we started collecting our own data set. And going through the obituaries, going through other memorial sites, going through you know news profiles and building a data set that we could visualize in a more interactive, more culturally centered way that would create a space to memorialize Black communities, but also call into question about data visualization and that how with asking the right questions and centering the human, 
we can visualize data in a way that connects people to the human in much more flexible, much more expansive, much more interactive ways. So home going, again, to visualize it for people, is a set of data symbols that move and are interactive when a user engages with them through, you know, a mouse or a touchscreen and allows people to click on a symbol and connect someone's life to a story that then connects someone's a name and sort of creates an experience of memorialization through data. Yeah, so we see on the screen three sorts of things. We see small thumbnail pictures yeah. of individuals, real individuals yes. who passed away from COVID during yes. the last couple of years. And then if we hover our mouse over the picture, there are two other elements, a list of names. You could actually choose any of these three elements or these moving long, uh, they're moving from the bottom to the top, top of the screen. Ascending, yeah. yeah, ascending kind of worm-like. Yeah. yeah, like gold yeah. colored. Yeah. Sort of, I guess I would call them like a symbol, but they're, you know, sort of oblong in their um, shape and they light up red. When, when we, you hover over. Yes, yes. And so then when we interact with it, if we pick any of those three elements, we can learn more about the individual. It becomes very personalized. Yes. At the same time as these ascending, maybe the raindrops. I mean, yeah. it's got a very yeah. fluid aspect to yeah. it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It feels very fluid. Yeah. Very um, beautiful. It's beautiful. I mean, thank it's you. beautiful. Yeah. And we call it homegoing because in the tradition of many African-Americans, certainly not all, that began in the system of enslavement, homegoing was a practice that help people transition their loved ones from the earthly state into another existence, home going, meaning going back to one's ancestral land, ancestral home, which African-Americans know that to be Africa, right? And so enslaved people, when a loved one passed away, they would give them a home going so that their soul was making that transition back to their ancestral home. For COVID Black, we wanted to create a digital rendition of a home going because so many communities of color and communities across the United States of all races and ethnicities could not have traditional funerals and a traditional closure that we really uh, need, I think, as human beings to you know, celebrate, memorialize and grieve lost loved ones. So many people were unable to have that and had to have that in a digital environment through Zoom or very small ceremonies. And so this became a way and a collective way to create a digital version of that. So what have been the ramifications of the 2020 protests in the wake of George Floyd's killing on the digital humanities? Yeah. A lot of the disciplines and a lot of the scholars we've been speaking to in this series have talked about impacts that they've felt in their departments, disciplines, and so on. Yeah. Has there been a similar or perceivable way in which Black digital scholarship addressed this or movements that you've been noticing? Yeah. I think this gets to the broader question about the ways that scholars who are working in Africana and Black studies see their work. And so I'm certainly not trying to speak for every scholar in Africana studies, Black studies, who might be working in the digital humanities. But what I understand that work to be, and this does, I think, play into your question around these, you know, really, unfortunately, ongoing acts of police violence and brutality against African-Americans is that scholars who work in the digital humanities, again, out of a tradition of Black studies and Africana studies, work in a context with these tools and technologies 
in the very politicized ways, right? And so I think what I've seen occur in these last couple of years are more a scholarship that is created with the idea, scholarship and projects, quite frankly, get the idea of first and foremost recovering, you know, Black people's lives in humanistic ways. I think we've seen people like Kimmy Fletcher, who does uh, radical death studies, to think about the ways that there's a praxis and an understanding of death in a very radical, politicized way. We've seen people working in and using geospatial technologies to map uh, police brutality as a call to action, to think about it spatially and think about what that space means. Again, you know, we see people who are working in areas around surveillance, uh, face recognition. And some people would say that that's not really digital humanities. Digital humanities has really been the home and space of English departments, right? Looking at text, analyzing digital text. You know, doing distant reading, right? Recovering lost digital texts and bringing those texts to new audiences or text mining to look at patterns. So all of that is also part of the digital humanities as well. But I think, um, you know, thinking from a Black digital humanistic perspective, I think there's a much more expansive way that those projects that I just mentioned come under the umbrella of the digital humanities. The last thing I'll say is social media has also, I think, been now recognized more as having a relationship to the digital humanities in ways that, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it wasn't necessarily always seen as being part of DH. But I think that having scholars of color, women and gender, and thinking much more expansively about the relationship between the digital and the humanities has created these spaces to also have those apart of the digital humanities. But again, there are people that would debate, I think, and make the case that these are not necessarily digital humanities and how they define it. So finally, this title of the series, yeah. Anti-Racism in the Disciplines, has been provocative for some of our speakers. What does that mean to you? Is it possible to do anti-racist work in the digital humanities? Is the digital humanities themselves need to be decolonized or is the work on the method itself? Yeah. Anti-racism as a concept, I find incredibly interesting in the sense that, let me say very clearly, I do think you can do anti-racist work in the digital humanities. And I think I am incredibly supportive of anti-racist work. I think it's important. I think it's valuable. I think there are people doing really great work. And I understand anti-racism work to be work that really works to undo racism, to advocate for a change in policy and the practice of racism to end and eradicate racism. And in the academy, I see that as being scholarship and activism and teaching and pedagogy and creating, you know, syllabi that is going to really challenge uh, structural racism. And what that looks like, I think, for the digital humanities is all of the above. When I think of Black DH work and the work that, you know, I see myself doing and my colleagues in doing, we, I believe, are centering and thinking about Blackness. And I think anti-racism work, for good reason, centers and thinks really critically about changing the way that white power structure works, right? I think Black DH does that in a sort of indirect way. But the people I see working in Black DH are really centering 
Blackness, Black humanistic ideas, recovering Black humanity, really thinking about the ways to uncover marginalized voices, both as scholars in the academy, but also marginalized voices that are lost in history, disrupting the canon, thinking about how to build digital collections that are going to be diverse and multifaceted in how we understand who is a writer and who is an authority on literature or on history. And that type of work, I think, can be put in the service of anti-racist work, but I don't think that is necessarily directly the objective. That's a really compelling, really helpful, and actually an amazing way to think about not only this conversation, but some of the conversations that proceeded in this series. Yeah. Kim, thank you so much for joining us in the conversation. Thank you. This is wonderful. Thanks for sharing your scholarship, your work, and inspiring those of us here in the audience of this podcast and also here at Tulane for the work that you're doing. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thank you. If you liked this podcast, help us spread the word. Tell your friends, teachers, or students, or share it on social media. And let us know how you are contributing to anti-racist scholarship and teaching at our website, liberalarts.tulane.edu slash anti-racism and the disciplines podcast. I'm your host, Brian Edwards. This podcast was produced by Gabriela Garcia Mays. Original music is by Corey Diane. Our production assistant was Maggie Green. And special thanks to Professor Billy Sass.